0: Turn to Daniel 12. This morning we will wrap up our study in the book of Daniel. I hope you have benefited, uh, benefited from it much. I know I have. Follow as I read Daniel chapter 12 from beginning to end. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness. Like the stars forever and ever. Those but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, "How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. All right. Uh, Much like many of the previous passages, there are differing interpretations of this passage across the conservative Christian church. And by the way, when I say conservative Christian church, I don't mean Republican Christian church or anything like that. I mean conservative in the most basic sense Uh, those who take every word of the Bible as God's word. and uh, we know that it's without error, and we seek to understand God's word as he intended, and we seek to live under its authority. Now, there are many other interpretations of Bible passages from those outside of the conservative Christian church, but they don't take the Bible as God's word, and I don't really care what they have to say. But within the conservative Christian church, there are a number of interpretations of this passage. So let me uh, start by giving you a glimpse, glimpse into some of the differing Interpretations. There are two general schools of thought, uh, with variations within them. But one is no, what is known as futurist. The other is known as preterist, which comes from uh, the Latin word "preter," which means past. So everyone agrees that this passage was pointing to something in the future for Daniel, but futurists think that this passage is pointing to something that is still in the future for Christians which means, you know, thus the name, futurists, while preterists believe, preter, past, believe that its fulfillment lies in the past for Christians. Futurists believe this is pointing to the end of all time. Preterists believe it is pointing to the end of what we might call the Jewish age, uh, especially between the resurrection of Christ around 30 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. For example, if you look at the text, verse 1, speaks of a time of trouble such as has never been seen since there was a nation. That's speaking of the nation of Israel. Futurists believe this is pointing us to the end of time, uh, what we would maybe refer to as the tribulation, a time such as has never been. um, And preterists believe this points us to the the time of trouble that led up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., It was a time of trouble, unlike anything Israel had ever known. It was worse than Egypt. It was worse than Babylon. And uh, again, just unlike anything they've ever known. I have a book here called Eusebius, the Church History. Eusebius was a church historian, and this uh, is a translation of his work. He was the first comprehensive church historian, meaning everyone, there were lots of historians that had bits and pieces of this era and that era, But in about the 300s A.D., he put together a comprehensive church history from the time of Christ up until his time. And I want to read you something that he says about the Roman siege of Jerusalem. This is dated uh, A.D. 68 leading up to A.D. 70. After Nero's rule of 13 years, that of Galba and Otho occupied a year and a half, and then Vespasian, who had distinguished himself in the campaigns against the Jews... Was proclaimed emperor while still in Judea, having been hailed as emperor uh, by the armies there. He immediately set out for Rome, entrusting to his son Titus the war against the Jews. Now, after our Savior's ascension, the Jews followed their crime against him with numerous plots against the apostles. First, they stoned Stephen to death. Next, James, son of Zebedee and brother of John, was beheaded. And finally, James, the first to be appointed bishop of Jerusalem, died in the way described previously while the other apostles were driven out of Judea by numerous deadly plots. But they traveled into every land teaching their message in the power of Christ, who had told them, go and make disciples of all nations in my name. Meanwhile, before the war began, the war in Jerusalem, 67 to AD seventy. Uh, members of the Jerusalem church were ordered by an oracle given by revelation to those worthy of it to leave the city and settle in a city of Perea called Pella. Here they migrated from Jerusalem as if once holy men had deserted the royal capital of the Jews and the whole land of Judea, the judgment of God, might finally fall on them for their crimes against Christ and his apostles, utterly blotting out all that wicked generation. So, Within the church, it has always been understood that the destruction of Jerusalem was the final judgment on Israel for rejecting Christ and, and um, signified a significant shift in redemptive history into what we might call the church age. Um, those who wish may trace precisely from Josephus's history. Josephus was a Jewish historian. You can read all about this in Josephus. He, he was very aware of all of the events of that time. Um, You can read all about it in Josephus' history, the disasters that overwhelmed the entire nation, especially how residents of Judea were driven to the limits of suffering, how many thousands of men, women, and children died by the sword, famine, and countless other forms of death, how many famous Jewish cities endured horrors under siege, and in particular the terrors of those who fled for refuge to Jerusalem as an impregnable fortress. They thought this was the place that they can't get, Uh, You can study all the details of the entire war and how, in the end, the abomination of desolation declared by the prophets was set up in the very temple of God, celebrated of old, when it was utterly destroyed by fire. I must, however, point out how Josephus estimates that the people from all of Judea, who at the time of the Passover, go on and so forth, um, I shall relate only their sufferings from starvation so that readers may learn how quickly God's punishment followed their crime against Christ. Anyway... You can go on to read some details of the things that happened, um, and they're horrific. I mean, I couldn't really read most of them. But basically, um, Jerusalem was surrounded by Romans, and they cut off all food supply and made it to where they couldn't get out. Uh, They were raped and tortured. They were starved to death. And they went crazy in the process, um, stealing from one another for survival, even eating one another for survival. Um, there is a story about a mother eating her child. And uh, they, it, was, it's, it was the worst thing to ever befall Israel. Um, I can at least say that the consensus of the early church is that this passage and other passages like it, such as Matthew 24 in the New Testament... We're pointing not to the end of time, but to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. (coughs) Next, in the second half of verse 1, we see that at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book of life. Futurists (coughs) believe this is pointing to Christians delivered from the tribulation at the end. Preterists believe this is speaking of those who were delivered from Jerusalem before it was destroyed. Those believers. As Eusebius said, before the war began, members of the Jerusalem church were ordered by revelation of God to go settle in a city of Pella. So they were delivered from the destruction that came upon those who rejected Christ. Uh, Next, in verse 2, we see many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Futurists believe this points to the second. Coming of Christ at the end. Preterists believe this either refers to uh, the first resurrection of Jesus. There's a mention in Matthew 27 upon his resurrection where bodies came out of the grave and uh, appeared to many. Um, but, or it, it's a uh, reference of people coming to life in Christ. And, you know, how would you make sense then of the um, that some come to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. Well, they say, well, this may be a reference to like the four different types of soils. There's apparent growth from all of them, but uh, some of them get snatched away by the devil. Some of them get choked out by trials. Some of them get choked out by the cares and concerns of this life, and, and there's really only one true convert um, there. Again, I'm just trying to give you an idea of how people interpret this. In verse 3, we see the glory of God shining in God's people. Futurists think this refers to those that preach the gospel at the end. Preterists believe this is about those that were preaching the gospel to the Jews between the time of the resurrection and the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, I tend to think that the Preterist interpretation is the right way to go, that this is pointing us to the 70 AD. Um, But... I don't know, and I really... I mean, you read both sides, and they're just fighting. And it's just, to me, it's like, everyone's a little bit grasping here. I mean, you know, everyone... No one really has this tight in their grip. And um, either way, we can remember that all of these things were future for Daniel. And with that in mind, no matter what side you fall on, there's a lot for us to learn in this passage. So, there are four main points that I want to make from the text... Uh, that I think can be made to preterists and futurists alike. Number one, we will all live somewhere forever. If you look back at verse 2, even if the preterists are right, and verse 2 points us either to the resurrection of Christ, the first resurrection, I mean, the resurrection, not His second coming, or to the conversion of sinners, and even if this is only initially referring to the Jewish nation, the text points to the fact that there will be those who awake to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. So even if the immediate context is in Jerusalem, understanding that the Bible is still moving us forward into the New Testament, uh, we would know that that's pointing us to the ultimate fulfillment in the New Testament where we see that this is what will happen for everyone, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting Contempt Hebrews nine twenty it is appointed for man to die once after that comes judgment Matthew twenty five thirty one and following when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away in eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So again, even if the immediate context is Jerusalem, it's pointing us to the greater context, which is all humanity in all of history The clear teaching of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, is that everyone will live forever somewhere. This life is really incredibly short compared to eternity hereafter. Everyone will go before the throne of Judge Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord, though only some will bow in glad submission, believers As those who have persisted in unbelief will bow in absolute terror as they see for the first time uh, that their unbelief was complete folly. As they see that He is indeed who He said He was and as they are justly punished according to His wrath for all of eternity. It's really a terrible thought if we will give ourselves to it. And uh, I love that in Daniel 12, immediately following verse 2, which speaks of some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. We find in verse 3, which says, those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. Because how could we honestly contemplate what it is that we have been delivered from and what it is those outside of Christ are actually facing the wrath of God for all eternity? How could we honestly consider that and not move toward unbelievers to seek to turn them to Christ <laughs> in all of our bumbling and fumbling and not really knowing how, but just at least in our hearts, we've got to move there and, uh, with our mouths as well. Number two, like Daniel, we are called to have faith amidst unanswered questions. So in verse six, we see, uh, that after Daniel was told about these things, he is, at uh, Someone asked how long it would be until they take place. The answer is a time, times, and half a time. And then Daniel says, I didn't understand. (laughs) It's like, that's a little comforting because neither do we. Um, We probably shouldn't try to be too dogmatic about a time, times, and half a time. And, you know, Google it. There's a lot of dogma, a lot of people real convinced about what that means. It wasn't clear then. Maybe it's not supposed to be now. He responds, Oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? I don't get it. And what is the answer that he gets? Somebody read verses 9 and 10. He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. And they shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Okay, first thing, don't be afraid about the language that says they will purify themselves and make themselves pure. Uh, that is actually New Testament language as well. 1 John 3.3, 3, everyone who hopes in the Lord purifies himself as he is pure. So now, we know that everything comes from God. Everything is a gift of His grace. The salvation is all of God's grace. Even our faith is a gift from God. But we have to exercise it, right? We have to apply it and live it out. And as we exercise our faith, as we hope in the Lord, it says that we purify ourselves. Now, He's the one that ultimately purifies us. We know it all comes from Him. But we participate, and in that sense, we purify ourselves. So that's biblical language. All verse 10 is saying is that God's people will grow in godliness and wisdom and understanding, purifying themselves as they hope in God, even amidst refining difficulties. But the wicked will grow in their folly. That's how it is today. Um, But the main point I want to make is that Daniel asked for clarity as to when this will happen and what all this means, and what is he told? He's told, go your own way, it's sealed up. He is not given the clarity that he's seeking. He is told that God's people will understand in God's time, but he is not given the answers that he is looking for. You know, it is interesting to me that most people spend their time in this passage and in passages like it speculating about what time this was referring to. Um, and granted, we have more understanding and more clarity than Daniel did in his day, but we don't want to miss the clear instruction, which is, go your own way. Now, this doesn't mean go any old way you like. It's, we should understand this to be consistent with what Daniel's been doing the whole time, which is walking in the ways of God. But the point is, stop asking, you're not going to get an answer, carry on. Daniel is told to carry on in faith amidst unanswered questions. And so are we. I love the verse in 1 Corinthians. uh, Now we see in a mirror dimly. Then we will see face to face. Now we know in part. Then we shall know fully, even as we have been fully known. You know, you look in a mirror, and you get an accurate reflection, but it's a little bit distorted. Depending on the lighting, it can make it look better or worse. Uh, you know, it can make it look fatter or skinnier. But it's accurate, and it's a true reflection, but it's not exactly as we will see it when we're face to face. And, you know, we see in part. We don't see everything. We don't know. But then, when we're in glory, we will know fully, even as we have been fully known. Um, until then, we're called to carry on in faith amidst unanswered questions. Whatever questions we have that go unanswered, and our questions may be different from the other person's questions, but we're all plagued with them. We all run up to the uh, lengths and you know limits of our understanding we're just called to trust the Lord, that He's sovereign. That's one of the grand themes of this book, uh, that He's all-powerful, that He's in complete control, that He's also good. And as we talked about last week, that He is working all things, even these worst things, for the good of His people. Number three, we, like Daniel, are instructed to be faithful where we are. Now... Um, in verses 11 and 12, Daniel is given more insight into the timing of all of this, but it's not as though it all of a sudden becomes clear to him because he doesn't know when the burnt offering will be taken away. He doesn't know when the abomination of desolation will be set up. So even though there's some precise numbers here, he's, he's like, oh, that doesn't really help because I still don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know. Um, and and, he's get, and then the response is reiterated, go your way till the end again this doesn't mean Daniel should do whatever he wants it means that he should be concerned about living as God has called him to live where God has called him to live it means that his concern is not to try to discern the time of the end his main concern has to be faithfulness where God has placed him and it's the same for us you know I don't think that we have many uh I don't think anyone in here is consumed with charts and graphs and trying to figure out, you know, the end times and if this is a sign for that. And don't bring that stuff to me because I'm just going to take you right back here. Uh, I think it's very unhelpful ultimately. But we just need to be concerned with, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. We know that He is coming back. And we know we need to be concerned with being faithful until He gets back. And there's even an urgency in expecting His return. Living like he's coming back, you know, now. But patiently awaiting and he may not come back for thousands of years. Um, No matter how many charts and graphs and speculations, no one knows when Jesus will return. Though we are instructed to be ready. And we should seek to live every day like it is our last, faithful uh, where God has placed us. You know there was a we were in men's board the other night, and Chris Taylor was telling a story about Jerry that I don't know, but Jerry has this old watch, and he just wears this old watch, and it's because he's figured out how to set a something with a stopwatch backwards, and he can always look at it and see how many hours are left until he goes to sleep. He goes He wakes up about the same time he goes to sleep about the same time, and it's always ticking down, you know, and he says the reason he does that is because he wants to think. Is this, if this is the last time that I interact with my wife before I go to work, if this is the last time that I interact with my children, how am I going to interact with them? If this is the last time that I interact with a client, or, you know, I know I want to glorify God, how, how would I want to leave them uh, in that? And I thought that was uh, pretty good. You know, if this is the last day that I get to assume my responsibilities... Am I going to assume them with grumbling and complaining or with gratitude even amidst the uh, hardships? Yet this shouldn't lead us, and I think sometimes that mindset leads us to a constant state of angst, like we have to fit it all in before he returns and say everything in every conversation. And, you know, I I don't think that's what we should do. We should simply seek to live every day in light of eternity, yet at the same time taking the long-term view of... uh, God's kingdom expansion he is the one that is expanding his kingdom and expanding his blessings ultimately Uh, we do have some responsibilities he's given us blessings and we are responsible to take what he's blessed us with and be a blessing to others so you know open my bible and read it the word is a blessing read it think about it pray to God in humble submission and service to him and, and ask him how to move forward Uh, for me to be faithful to my wife. You know, I've been doing what I'm doing long enough to see how catastrophic it is when that doesn't happen, and uh, that's no small thing, to be faithful, to listen to her and and love her well, to lead her in the paths of life, to love and provide for and protect my children, to teach them God's ways, to show them how to follow Him, to be faithful in the work that God has assigned to me and, and to you. To love my neighbors, starting with the ones in my home, uh, the ones in my church, the ones that live right next to me, and extending to whoever God puts in my path, to serve my church, so on and so forth. I mean, it's simple, but it's hard. And of course we fall short. So, we live in a constant state of repentance and faith. We confess our sins and we believe God is faithful to forgive us every time, all the time, and to cleanse us and then He returns us again and again to the responsibilities that we don't deserve, but that He gifts to us, and, you know, that He's entrusted to us. Of primary concern has to be faithfulness where we are. All right, number four. And finally, the, uh, for the people of God, there is a hope of final rest. You think about the kinds of trials that Daniel was facing a lifetime in exile, uh, removed from the comforts of home and church and homeland, promised future difficulty. Though he is, at the end, receiving great news about deliverance, it's not all glorious because there's going to be future difficulty for the people of God. So how is Daniel to lean into this? Well, the last verse of the book tells us, verse 13, go your way till the end, And you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Go be faithful where I have you, and you will have rest in the end. You know, um, I just finished reading The Hobbit, and it took me a very long time because I've never really read uh, that fantasy genre. And it's kind of slow going at times. I mean, even honestly, just reading anything that was written longer than 50 years ago we just don't have the attention span for it we prefer tweets and they are really meandering in character development um (laughs) but i told tiffany it took me about 300 pages to get into it and then it was a page turner you know just uh i really enjoyed it at the end and if you don't know the story bilbo baggins is the uh main character he lived in the shire where hobbits live, and he had no desire to leave the Shire. Uh, that's where his home was, that's where the comforts were, and that is where he wanted to stay, thank you very much. Now, Gandalf shows up with a crew of misfits, and he tells him you're going on an adventure, and he went reluctantly, but over time, he grew to embrace his assignments, and he had an outsized influence. Hobbits are very small usually between two and four feet. Um, He had an outsized influence, all the while longing for home. I mean, you know, pretty much every scene, whatever trouble they were getting into, he's thinking about home, and he's longing for home, but he fought faithfully the whole way. He was courageous, he had wisdom, um, and was used greatly in advancing the cause. At long last... He went home to rest with great difficulty even until the very end. And I thought about that. I thought, you know, that's the way it was for Daniel. That's what he was being told to do at the end of the book. Go your way. Be faithful where I have you. You'll get rest in the end. And that's the Christian life. We serve the Lord where He places us. We are seeking to be rooted and built up in the hope that we have in Christ for all eternity. We're letting that fuel our energies for this life. Our endurance through hardship, our submission, glad submission to the Lord, no matter what he brings our way. Keeping in mind, keeping our minds always in the heavens, trying to cut our ties with this world, while at the same time seeking to be of maximum earthly good. You know, I hate the statement, he was so heavenly minded, he was no earthly good. That's, I mean, I guess you could do that, but that's stupid. We want to be heavenly minded so that we can have maximum earthly impact. All the the while remembering this is not our home, this world is wearisome, and we will reach our rest in the end. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your word. It is true. It is living. It is active. It is absolutely applicable to the here and now. And we thank you for opening it to us. We continue to ask for wisdom and understanding, Lord, that uh, we might hold it dear and meditate on it and uh, be built in it for the long haul. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the hope that we have in you, that uh, you lived in our place and you took every last one of our sins. and. We have the hope of glory, and it is not wishful thinking. It is a fixed and sure hope that we long for, uh, sometimes more so than others if we're honest. Sometimes we're quite content in the shire, and uh, we would just assume stay right there. But, Lord, we thank you for your commitment to come and push us outside of our comforts and uh, teach us and train us to cling to you and hope in you And as scary as it may be, we ask for more, uh, that you would continue to send us out and use us. Teach us, Lord, to be faithful right where we are. Teach us to humbly return again and again in glad submission to the responsibilities you've given us, uh, in repentance and faith, believing the gospel, and carrying on in the energy that it provides to go and do well and fight until the end. We thank you, Lord for your faithfulness, which will see us through. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, we do have a minute if you want to throw out a question or thought or anybody have a favorite part of the book of Daniel? Just all of it mainly. The lion's den, den. that's right, that's right. (laughs) I know what Will said. Do you think that you could have a better handle on it reading through? I mean, is that, you know, you get some of these crazy visions and you think, well, what in the world? I mean, remember, the whole point of apocalyptic literature is to give you a vision about God and a hopeful vision at that for God's people into the future. Um, The book lands with, you know, the, the ultimate resurrection of all of God's people when we will find rest in the end. And... Anyway, I think it's. Uh, you can even read outside of the stories that you know in Daniel and find great help and encouragement. Is there any resource that was the best to you. Yeah, um, Sinclair Ferguson. He always tends to be very helpful in anything. Um, he's pastoral and also has a very good handle on languages and things like that. And he's always, you know, some commentaries are uh, big and not very accessible, but his is deep and yet accessible. I would say Sinclair Ferguson was probably the best. I always get one from John Calvin because I just feel like I should and feel like I, and I reference him and sometimes it's great, but you know, he's also interacting in conversations that we're not privy to and you can get a little... The institutes are great. Um, If you ever want some really thick, deep, uh, edifying reading, you should read Calvin's institutes, but his commentaries can be a little bit hard to navigate sometimes. Anyway. I think it's helpful not reading uh, so futuristically and and kind of staying as a real person writing to a real group. Yeah. Um, And if you do it that way, you can read Revelation and a lot of other things as well yeah um, there are things in the Bible that are still future for the Christian but they're a lot fewer than we originally thought and um, it is it's like okay wait a second here's a real brother you know going through real stuff and he's being given real hope and it wasn't written to us right yeah exactly the Bible, I mean I was like that's one of the biggest lessons learned for me as of the last few years is the Bible wasn't written for me. Right. It was written for His audience, and we get, in, in a sense, written for me. Yeah, sure. But and the Lord certainly takes that and applies it, I mean, personally, doesn't He? You, it it always hits me right where I am, but it has a context that we have to understand to get the actual meaning. That's great. And that's meant for encouragement. Yeah. To overwhelm—that's the thing with the charts and graphs. It—it it tends to lead. My mom has a good friend where she lives, and she's big on all the end-time stuff, and she lives in constant fear and anxiety. And you know that—that that should be one thing that we could go and say. is Say, you know, the point of this was to empower God's people. And if you, I'm not saying that we're all going to respond in perfect faith, but truly, if we access its message and it's not bringing some kind of encouragement. We're probably doing it wrong, you know. Anyway. Yeah, the purpose of the Scripture for Christians is certainly not to cause us fear and anxiety. Yeah. Hey, let me just speak to a word about, you know, there's there's a constant temptation to feel relevant. Um. I really don't like that. And it's probably because, you know, I don't, Know how to keep up with the times of cool and everything. But the most useful thing that you can do is open the Bible, understand it, and apply it to life. You know, Stephanie was saying with Uncle David's funeral, and it was just devastating because you have these people that get up there, and and in order to try to be cool or whatever, I don't know what it is, but it's just they don't have anything to say. And when you when we open this and we try to understand it and we pull out the meaning that God intended, it doesn't matter if you give it in a way that seems relevant. The Bible is relevant. It's true. And it applies to people's lives. And it's what they need. It's what everyone longs for. It's, it's the, the food that our soul needs. And so you don't have to be flashy. Just get in there, pull some stuff out, and hand it over. Um, and that's what people need. That's what people need here. That's what people need in Uganda. That's what people need in Midtown. That's what people need all over the world. They need God's word. Period. What are we doing next week? I don't know. <laughs> no, I think we're gonna um I think we're gonna study Matthew next. And uh I've been wanting to do a gospel. Moving at a similar pace to this. We kind of got through it rather quickly we did Sermon on the Mount a few years ago for like two years we'll we'll probably spend a couple sermons in the Sermon on the Mount but uh, probably take a breather from that Aaron had mentioned something about maybe a mini series on the church and uh, I think that's a good idea so we may may do that Um, and next week probably a interview so if you haven't been up here on the hot seat yet Get ready. But does gospel sound good, Matthew? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Hey, I said I. Uh, one more thing on Daniel. I'm starting Proverbs, uh, and I was watching a Bible Project video just to kind of get a little bit of background yesterday. And let's uh, talk about the Hebrew word. And this is the only time I'll ever reference a Hebrew word, uh, <laughs> only because I saw it yesterday and I will forget it but tomorrow. Right. But. Uh, the word for wisdom actually is a lot of people tend to tie to knowledge, and it's really more about knowledge applied and worked out. I think that's kind of—it's it been helpful for me to listen to Dan. It was like when you don't understand everything, look for the things that you can apply. That's right. So that you can work the knowledge out. That's right. And, uh, don't get just caught up in a constant torment of trying to know. Yeah. Know, so if the knowing doesn't lead to doing; that it's going to become an idol. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think we're especially guilty of that in the conservative Christian church, kind of back to where we started. We want to get our P's and Q's and T's and I's right. But if it doesn't ever lead to life life and application, we're not doing it right. The whole point is wisdom, which is applied knowledge. Good stuff. All right. Good day.